Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... The Tabletop Bellhop, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon, Andrew Bookholtz of BoardandGame.com, Dice and Dragon, Board on the Air, Mr. Rao Gaming, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please take the time to check out the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast, and sit back, stand up, lie down, enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and working with you to make your game nights better. Now, it's going to be a pretty quick one this week as I didn't get a lot of tabletop games in. See, this past weekend, instead of spending Friday evening board gaming with our favorite couple, Tori and Kat, we instead got together on Saturday for a double date night. Now, this involved stops at multiple breweries, one of our favorite restaurants, and later more drinks back at our place. There was some gaming involved, but most of it was digital, as Tori insisted we play Mario Party, uh, we did some Just Dance to work off some of the copious amounts of food we'd eaten, and played Rock Band until the sun came up. Now, the only tabletop game that got played was another game of Racco at the Banded Goose Brewery. This is now the thing we do when we end up at the Banded Goose. Now, what shocked me most about this play is that neither Tori or Kat had played or even heard of Racco. To me, Racco is just a staple. It's a game everyone played at some point and, or grew up playing, or it's a game your parents had. I guess I was wrong, since first Deanna and now Kat and Tori had never played it. Well, that is until Saturday. I'm pleased to say they are right with me when I say Racco is a fantastic game to play over drinks, alcoholic or not. It's super casual and great for hanging out and having a conversation while playing a game. While there's still some skill to it, it doesn't take enough concentration to put conversations on hold. Now, the one problem with Racco is if you play a full game to 500 points, it's way too long. We ran into that problem again, having to end our game before hitting the proper point total. And you know what's kind of funny is I don't even remember who had the highest score, and I don't care. It was a fun game and part of a great day. Now, the only other physical game I played this past week was giving Psy the go with two players. Deanna joined me for this game, and I have to say the game plays much differently when you're sober. Now, at this point, we're still figuring out the intricacies of the game, and I'm glad we gave it a go with only two players. I now feel I could do a much better job teaching the game the next time it hits the table with more than two. As for our game, it was interesting. Uh, the biggest surprise was how quick it felt while playing. I was like, blam, 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 I move a unit, you go. I harvest and build, you go. I bolster and upgrade, you go. Individual turns were lightning quick. But then when the game ended, we looked at the time and it ended up we've been playing for almost two hours. Note that does include setup, so I'm going to guess probably an hour and a half game. 
Now, another observation we made was that this game is going to take multiple plays to fully grok. There are lots of moving parts in Scythe, and it's easy to forget one or more. For example, in this last two-player game, Deanna basically forgot all about the factory, both that it got you a new permanent, permanent action with a second move on it, and that it counted as three territories. This mistake basically handed me the win. Myself, I personally figured out that you don't actually need Riverwalk to walk, reach the center of the board. That's something I didn't even notice our first game. I just assumed you had to build a mech and you had to get Riverwalk to be able to get to the center, and that's not the case. Finally, we did find our first complaint with the game so far. Deanna really hated the fact the game ends immediately after getting that sixth star out. While I personally used this to my advantage, getting two stars in one turn after two actions, she hated that the game just stopped. She felt it ended too early, and she had things she was still working on that she wanted to finish before the game ended, whether she won or lost. Now, honestly, I'm sure this is by design, but I have to say that immediate scoring can be very jarring and will take a bit to get used to. Overall, Scythe is turning out to be a better game than I initially gave it credit for, which just goes to show you just how much the group you play with can affect your enjoyment of a game. Well, that's it for my week in gaming. Before I go, a reminder to visit TabletopBellhop.com. Join us tonight and every Wednesday night on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern for our live podcast recording, and look for us on your podcatcher of choice or YouTube if you can't join us live. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Mo Tuzano. Good day! And game on. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleNewMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I've been playing for what you've been playing Wednesday. This week, it's 32 degrees outside, and I have my AC turned off so I can record this segment, so let's keep it short and simple. This week, Bigfoot and I played War Chest by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. War Chest had been on both of our want to play lists for a while. Now, I have a strong affinity for two player abstract strategy games, even if they don't hit my table very often. While I don't think this is going to radically change my gaming habit soon, I do think War Chest is special and deserves a closer look. The theme of War Chest is about as strong as any other abstract strategy game. In War Chest, you take on the role of medieval battlefield commanders vying to take control of tactical battlefield positions. It's about as generic as it gets, right? To begin a game of War Chest, each player is dealt four unit cards and takes the corresponding unit chips from the box and places them into their own supply. Each player then takes two chips from each unit and places them into their bag along with their own royal chip. Their bag is shaken and the game begins, with each player drawing three chips into their hand. Basically put, each round you and your opponent will draw chips from your bag, take actions with those chips, then redraw when you've both depleted your hands and repeat until one player has managed to lay out all six of their control tokens to win the game. The units in War Chest are what give the game color and texture. Some have passive abilities, like the Pikeman who has a stipulation that when a unit attacks from an adjacent location, they also take a damage, or the Knight who can only be attacked by a unit who has been bolstered. Some units have restrictions, like the Archer, who cannot take the generic attack action, but must use its tactic, which will allow it to attack a unit two spaces away. And others will just have a tactic that you can choose to activate, like the Lancer, who can choose to move one or two spaces in a straight line and then attack, all for a single action. This allows you to close a wide gap quickly. War Chest has a lot of push and pull to it. Because you need to have matching chips in your bag to activate the units on the board, 
you're compelled to fill your bag with as many chips as possible so you can activate your units more often, but there's a delay. The unit you're recruiting chips for won't be drawn again until your bag runs out and then you can refresh your bag where you put all of your discarded tokens back into, back into the bag. If you do have a unit on the board and three matching chips in your bag, great. You can start activating that unit frequently, but they'll have a target painted on their back. Your opponent can see how many tokens you've recruited into your bag an activating unit requires you to discard a token face up, meaning your opponent knows when a unit is spent and can move in for the kill. There's nine different actions you can do with each chip, which gen generally fall under three categories. There's deploy, where you just place your chip out onto the board. There's maneuver actions, where you discard a chip to take an action with a matching chip on the board, such as move, attack, bolster, control, or tactics. And finally, you can just discard a chip face down to claim initiative, Recruit, which moves a chip from your supply into the discard pile, or pass. Now, getting things done in war chests is a slow affair. Your bag starts with nine tokens, two from each of your four units, meaning it'll take at least three rounds before your discard pile goes back into the bag. Assuming you deploy two of your units, that only leaves you with one matching chip for each of those two units in your bag. And that means there's only one maneuver action per bag refresh. It can take three or four bag refreshes just to get a chip into position. Because it takes so long to do anything, combat feels dangerous. When you have a unit in the, line, in the line of fire, you immediately start sweating and hoping against hope that you'll be the first to attack, lest the progress you made with this token is undone in one fell swoop. On the subject of attacks, when you're attacked, you remove the attack chip from the game. Your available chips will slowly dwindle over time. Again, because your opponent can count, they can figure out when they've effectively rendered a unit useless. The risk of being attacked can be mitigated by bolstering the unit, by placing an identical chip create on top of one already on the board, creating a stack. Now when you're attacked, the top chip is still removed from the game, but the lower chip remains where it is. Now you don't need to spend those extra actions returning a subsequent unit to the same position. Again, the push and pull of war chest shows up. If you bolster, you will have less chips in your bag to activate that unit on future turns. Everything is a trade-off. The goal of war chest isn't to eradicate your opponent, but instead to control six points on the board. You control a point by moving unit onto a control point, then discarding a chip matching the unit on that spot, which allows you to, to place your control token. Once you have a control token down, you can deploy future units from this spot, assuming it's unoccupied. Should your opponent manage to get one of their units onto your control space, it only takes one control action to, for them to remove your token and install their own. <laughs> One of the games we played, Bigfoot managed to win without attacking me a single time. The threat of combat was enough to keep me back and he managed to get all his control tokens down before I could react. In another game, a single crossbowman was deployed to the board and with four matching chips in the bag, he proceeded to move it into a position and cripple my forces with multiple attacks. I had no units that could close the gap quick enough and take out that devastating unit. I imagine every unit can be devastating in specific circumstances, and while I'm still a beginner at this game, I can see there is significant depth ahead of me. Like most abstract strategy games, this is best played against a single person multiple times, with both of you learning and growing together. Previous games, uh, sorry, previous games experience informs the decisions as you move forward. A unit that was ineffectual in one game could be clutch in another. When a meta forms and develops over multiple plays as you and your opponent sharpen your skills against each other, something special is made. I suspect that as you play War Chest more, you'll start drafting your starting units instead of dealing them out randomly. 
and this would allow you to craft your army in response to your opponent, offering even more strategic decisions. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the luck factor. Because you need matching chips in your hand to activate the units on the board, a lot of time is spent just putting yourself into the best and potentially dangerous position, and just hoping that you draw the correct chip that will allow you to activate a unit that's in striking distance before your opponent can, or even further, so that you can control a location before that unit gets wiped off the map. To me, the luck in war chess comes across as more risky than anything else. If you find yourself in a potentially dangerous situation, it may be worth burning a whole action just to ensure you get to go first next round after you draw your next three chips. War Chest feels ripe for expansions, and at this time, looking on BGG, two have already been released, War Chest Siege and War Chest Nobility. Both add more units and vary the battlefield, giving players new challenges to crash against. While I don't feel ready to add expansions into my game yet, I'm glad to know that they already exist. If you're looking for something along the same lines as War Chest, I can personally recommend Santorini. It's also a great strategic game with interesting asymmetric gameplay. If asymmetry is not your bag, then I could recommend Hive or Tack. I find such joy when playing these games against players of equal skill. Of course, there's always chess and go if you want, if you want to wade into those waters, but with a skill ceiling so high in those games, it can be hard to find players of a similar skill. And that's all I have to talk about this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can read them over at meeplethemoose.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have one game to talk about. What game is that, Anna Marie? That game is New York Zoo, designed by Uwe Rosenberg, artwork by Felix Wormke, and published by Capstone Games and Furland. Yes, uh, New York Zoo. This is, uh, yeah, like you said, it's designed by Uwe Rosenberg, and this is very much a polyamino Rosenberg yep. game uh, in which, what's going on here? We're, we're building a zoo. Yes, and competing zoos. And we start the game having our own player boards, and the whole objective of the game is to fill your player board fully. Completely. With yep. the uh, the polyamino poly pieces, and the first person to do so is going to win the game. And yeah. these the, the pieces make up the different enclosures yes. that you are building for your zoo that are going to house a whole bunch of animals. Yeah, and there are four different um, sizes of enclosures. You have like the lightest green has, I think, like four or five, four pieces, like four squares in some yeah, configuration. Yeah, seven. Yeah, and then yeah. it just goes darker, darker, darker. and Yeah. So what you're doing is there's, so you have your own player board in front of you. Yeah. And it's that that is your zoo that you need to to create but in the middle of the table there's a, a main board and it's this kind of weird <laughs> zigzaggy looking chopped up kind of board and it's going to have a bunch of things going on in it kind of like in um what's the patchwork where you need to select a polyamino in kind of a counterclockwise order or clockwise doesn't matter yeah but you're going around a circle so you have this board that's kind of you're going around a circle in this board and you're and you're either taking a polyamino from one of the sections that is uh, on that board 
or you're taking an animal from that board. Yeah. So you have a little. There's a there's a starting t um, starting little elephant, yes. and you move the elephant. Uh, depending on your player count, there's a, it's like three spaces or four spaces yeah, up to. I think it's up to four spaces. Yeah. You can and, move the elephant, and it depends on what you cross with that. Elephant. It's where yeah, and where you land. So. Yeah. You can either land on um, an enclosure space where you pick up the polyomino tile and you can lay it on your on your board, yep. or you can um, land on um, the animal acquisition spot, and there'll be right. um, each Which one is of the those blue section of the board. Yeah, and it's got each one will have two animals, so it'll have either like a flamingo and an arctic fox, or a meerkat and a penguin, or you know, uh, I think it's a tree kangaroo. Yeah, any combination they of have, the five different animals. Yeah. What do we have? Meerkats, flamingos, penguins, arctic foxes, which are white foxes. And the tree and kangaroo. And some sort of kangaroo. Pretty sure it's a tree, is what they said. But. Right. Um, so you have those five animals, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, you land on one of them and it's, you can choose between, um, or you, you get a penguin and a meerkat. Um, you have to have space on your board to to get it or an enclosure where you can put them mm -hmm. in um or uh, and when you're going to those two spaces you may possibly pass a breeding ground and if you pass a breeding ground that triggers for everybody um everybody who has right. at least two of those animals in one enclosure yes they get to breed in that enclosure yeah you'll add one more little um, yes animal meeple to that enclosure but only up to only up to one you can have yeah you can only breed one animal per enclosure yes. and you can only breed up to two animals per um like breeding turn so if you right. had two different enclosures with two animal like say two different enclosures with penguins in them yeah. and you had at least two penguins in each you could breed but you couldn't breed like four penguins like breed two penguins with four right. in yeah, one but um but if you had say three different enclosures with penguins you could still only breed on two of them Right, yeah. So yeah. you can't go buck wild. You can't just <clears throat> no. like gather one kind of animal and then just breed no, all over the place. No, just breed, 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 and, and, yeah. and do this. Because the whole thing with the uh, the animal acquisitions is the second you fill out an enclosure, any one polyamino with, so, say it's a, a level six polyamino, so it's got six squares on it. If you have six penguins on that spot, then you clear them off and you're able to acquire a... An attraction. An attraction tile. And those attraction tiles are of all sorts of different shapes and sizes. I think they're ranging from about five down to one. They have one, I think, is like eight. It's huge, and it's so it can sure, like it help, help to you, fill up your board. But it there will be those spots on your board that have a single yeah. one or two squares that you cannot fill in. And remember, the whole point of this game is to fill in those squares. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, well, do I take the big one or do I? Do I take the small one? And right? fill in Depending my board. Exactly. And from what I recall is that I more often than not needed those singles. Those singles or those doubles were the ones that I went for more often than not to fill in my board to try and win this game. Yeah. And yeah, you go round and round the table. This this game does play two-player quite well. Mm -hmm. And you go round and round and round and you, yeah, you're adding tiles to your board. You're adding animals to those tiles and you're getting more attraction tiles to fill in the little spots. And it's the first person to fill, fill their in board, board triggers the end of the game and wins. That's it. You just win yeah, outright. Whoever, whoever fills in their board first wins. Yeah, and period. we came down to the wire 
every time we play this, oh. really, it's like I'm. It's like either I'm going to win now, or you're going to win on your next. Yeah, terms. we kind of usually the way it works. Yeah, it comes down to where you've got like in a two player game. Anyways, we found that it's you have like one square kind of left. Uh, we did that a, a few times with a four player game. It was a little bit more varied because yes. then it depends on your player style. Right. I had for sure. Um, Rael was playing and she would she's very much likes to fill in gaps like so she didn't like having any open little spaces. Yes. So she focused there, whereas other people are just trying to like fill as much as they can and gap later. Yes. So it. So you can kind of have more variability there, but yeah. but it's still pretty close. There's never a blowout. And it scales really well yeah, because depending does. on your player count, you have different sized player boards. Mm -hmm. So for a two player, it's kind of like big and wide open. But the the more players you have, the the, the smaller space yeah. you need to to fill in. A smaller zoo. <laughs> or, yeah, smaller zoo we'll you need to build. Yes. And yeah, no, this this one ranks really nicely up there with all the 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 simpler side of the. Uh, Uwe Rosenberg library. Um, but still crunchy trying to figure oh yeah, out which... It's got uh, some great decision making, yeah. but it's it's very streamlined, yeah. simple. There's only a couple options you can take on any given yes. turn, and it's just place the tile or animal where you think is best for that given time. So no, it's, it's a really good one. I really, really like this one. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me of a more elaborate patchwork, yep. I would think. So if you like patchwork, this might be the nice big step forward. Um, yeah. In 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 that genre, anyway. But uh, woo, we're closing on eight minutes here, so we're gonna run. And uh, oh, I'll uh, I'll plug our podcast. We just did a uh, a full review of Dead Reckoning from AEG on the latest episode of the Meeple Dungeon podcast. And our next episode is gonna feature a full review of Wonderlands War from Skybound Games. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check those out. But, yeah, we're going to run, and we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hi, this is Andrew Buckholz of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. This week, I'm going to talk about Fantastic Factories. Fantastic Factories is designed by Joseph Z. Chen and Justin Faulkner, with art by Chen. It was first published in 2019, but that 2019 publication came after a successful 2018 Kickstarter. Fantastic Factories is published by Metafactory Games and various partners, including Deepwater Games. This is a design for 1-5 to five players, and it plays in 45-60 to 60 minutes. I'm also going to be talking about Fantastic Factory's Manufactions, the recent expansion that was released in 2021. Fantastic Factories is an engine-building game, and it's a pretty simple one. Each player starts with four dice of their color. They're going to then do a couple of different things. First, in the market phase, they're going to take a new card from the eight available on the table. Four of those are blueprints for buildings, which can be picked up without any cost. The other four are contractors, which give an immediate effect, but require you to discard a blueprint with the matching tool symbol. 
The market phase is played in turn order, but it goes pretty fast because each player is only picking one card. The display is then refilled and the next player will then pick a card, whether that's a blueprint or a contractor. If you don't like the cards that are currently available, you have the option to discard one resource to clear either the blueprints or the contractors and reveal new ones from the deck before you make your selection. There are two resources in the base game, metal and energy, and there's a third, vitamins, added in manufactures. Any of those can be used for that effect of clearing and refilling the market. Once each player has taken a card, you go on to the work phase. This is done simultaneously, and this is a big advantage for keeping this game moving smoothly and quickly. Of course, if you're playing for the first time, you may need some assistance figuring out how exactly this works. So the first couple of work phases may take a little longer, but it's pretty quick to get the flow of, and it's pretty easy after you've played a round or two. So what do you do in a work phase? Well, first you roll your dice. That's going to be the four dice that you started with, plus any white neutral dice that you've gained from card effects. These dice are your workers, and they can do various things for you. You start with a headquarters board where you can assign dice to do research, which is getting more blueprints, to generate, which is getting more energy, or to mine, which is getting more metal. In the base game, everyone starts with one metal, two energy, and four blueprints in their hand. But in manufactures, players can start with individual corporations that give them an ongoing bonus throughout the game and also a varied set of starting resources. Manufactions also adds vitamins, a third resource, that you cannot generate from your headquarters. You can only gain them from effects of other buildings or from effects of contractors. But the vitamins are extremely useful because you can use a vitamin to modify a die, either plus one or minus one, or plus two or minus two if you have a particular ability that allows for that. So during your work phase, in addition to generating or mining or researching, you can also construct new buildings. To do that, you have to pay the resource cost on the building, and you also have to discard another blueprint with a matching symbol. That makes for some tough choices, because a lot of these buildings can be pretty effective, so you have to quickly choose what areas you're going to focus on and what buildings you're willing to discard in order to build other ones. One thing that does help with that choice is that you cannot build two buildings with the same name unless a card says otherwise, and there are quite a few duplicates in the game, so if you wind up with some duplicates in your hand, that's an easy decision to make on what to discard to build something else. Buildings come in five types. Production buildings manufacture goods, which are going to be points for you. Utility buildings produce resources. Training buildings let you modify the value of your workers, your dice. Monument buildings don't do anything, but they're worth extra points at the end of the game. And then there are some special buildings that don't fit neatly into one of the other categories. So everyone plays this work phase simultaneously, building new buildings, assigning their dice to different buildings, sometimes generating more dice that they immediately get and roll, then placing those dice, and it leads to some pretty interesting combo effects. 
After that, you go back into the market phase where everyone will take another card. The first player marker shifts, so who's taking first changes. And then you go into another work phase and you keep on doing this until the game end condition is reached, which is somebody having 12 goods or 10 cards in their tableau. If that happens, everybody plays one more round and then you score. Scoring is going to be just the total of points on your cards plus the number of goods you generated through the game. There's also a very good solo mode here that works by having you go against the machine which is a simple, low-overhead opponent you run with variable difficulty settings. I like Fantastic Factories a lot, both as a solo game and as a multiplayer game. As a solo game, it's a fun and easy puzzle, and one that doesn't take a lot of effort to run your opponent. As a multiplayer game, I think it works quite well as for teaching people how engine-building games work, while still having enough interesting stuff going on to appeal to seasoned veterans. It's nice that it also plays quickly even with five players because so much of the game is simultaneous. And especially now with Manufactions, there are abilities for a lot of really cool combos that you can pull off, which is always one of my favorite things in games. That's Fantastic Factories. I'm Andrew Buckholtz, and you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z, and you can read my board game writing at BoardingGame.com. Thanks for listening. What up, gamers? I'm Jason from Dice and Dragons. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And on today's episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesdays, we've been playing Legendary Marvel Studios the first 10 years, the MCU version of the game. They just released the latest expansion, which is Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Now, these expansions and even the Marvel Studios corset does work with the classic original version of Legendary, which is published by Upper Deck Entertainment and designed by Devin Lowe. So, our collection of the game is really just the MCU content. We're trying to keep the collection small as there are a ton of expansions for Legendary. We do tend to like to pick up everything, so it's a good way for us to manage our collection. Now, for those of you that are fans of the channel, you know that... One of Julie's favorite games is Legendary, in particular the Marvel version and the X-Files version. As it's been probably about a year or more since we've played uh, any version of the game, uh, we were both eager to get this back to the table, and it's one of the easier ones for us to play and review. We had a really crazy week <laughs> last week. Now, I really did enjoy uh, this expansion, so that Julie, you can definitely hear all of our thoughts uh in a review that will be coming out uh, the day after this. Uh, you do get some new mechanics such as the artifacts, which are cards that will go into play uh, in front of you. They will stay in play and will be triggered by specific uh, effects and different things that you'll be doing throughout the course of the game. You do get the new excessive violence uh, ability. Well, yeah, I, th I think ability is the best way to call it. And the excessive kindness ability, which will mean dealing extra damage to characters. So if you go over the printed damage amount that you have to deal by one, you trigger the excessive violence effects. Now you can trigger multiple ones with just uh, one effect there. Also, when it comes to the excessive kindness uh, effect, that'll be recruiting uh, a hero with uh, an extra 
uh, point value. So if it's three, you're going to spend four. And then you get to trigger those effects, which will be some nice uh, bonuses for you. Uh, so far from our plays of the game, we've really enjoyed the schemes that we got to try out. Found that the Guardians are incredibly thematic and really work well with the overall uh, legendary set. Mantis feels uh, very thematic with, with her excessive kindness. Love Drax, always focusing on excessive violence. Starlord, I have to say, was maybe the, the most disappointing uh, of the cards. I didn't really find uh, him to be too much of a standout. Gamora was great, as was uh, Rocket uh, and Groot. Now, in terms of villains, you do get Eagle, the, the Living Planet, and Ronin. So those were really cool uh, villains to have. I would have to say that Ronan and Eagle are a little annoying to fight. Uh, we made a mistake on our first game uh, as the expansion doesn't come with henchmen. It comes with new villain sets uh, to go with those big masterminds that you'll be uh, facing off against. So you get the followers of Ronan and you get the Ravagers. And we did not pick a henchman villain set that lets you KO cards. That's one of the things that uh, we did notice in our first game was very difficult to knock out heroes, thin our deck, and get rid of wounds, and just the gray starting heroes. So keep that in mind. I'd recommend uh, if you're playing with the slimmed down version of Legendary, not adding this to, you know, years and years of content like we are with just the MCU, you'll probably want to add in the 10 ranks fanatics for your henchman set. Once we do that, things float a little bit uh, more smoothly. Now, not quite sure how we feel about the schemes. The schemes that we did uh, play were definitely pretty cool, but they definitely weren't my favorite. I think I do like some of the more uh, slim down schemes, well not slim down schemes, I'd say maybe more straightforward schemes that are in the original game. I would say that this Guardians of the Galaxy expansion definitely pushes Legendary to the limit of what you can do comfortably. If you got a ton of different artifacts out, you can be doing all sorts of different effects and can lead to some really long turns. That being said, it doesn't happen all that often. And when you trigger those long turns, it's typically because you're doing a lot of stuff. So really cleaning up the city or potentially hitting the Mastermind multiple times. So that is definitely pretty cool. But it can get a little dull for other players. Now, as we play the game at the two-player count, it always flows fairly quickly for us, and we typically complete our plays around the 30 to, uh, well, more like the 45 to 60-minute mark, so it really hits that nice sweet spot for us. Well, I think I've talked enough about the game. You can definitely hear our review that's going to be coming out tomorrow, so make sure to check us out on the channel if you're interested in Marvel Legendary Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And with that being said, don't forget... Keep playing games. Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm David. And this is Board on the Air, a weekly radio show on CFCR in Saskatoon. Tonight on What Have You Been Playing? Scythe. Yes, the Jamie Stegmeyer classic was a or modern classic yeah it's one of his biggest games yeah that that in viticulture is two big ones in my opinion yeah it's one of my favorite games of all time so yeah it's a uh action selection dudes on a map game ish yeah engine builder like you have a board in front of you you're taking actions and you're upgrading those actions to make those actions better. Well, one of the actions is upgrading them to make them better. 
Well, I yeah. guess all of them really do something that improve them, but... Yeah. Basically, you have four actions. You do the top part, and then you might do the second part, which usually improves upon the actions. Yeah, the, the top part is usually either a coin or a free action. Yeah. And the bottom usually costs you resources. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own specific faction that has their own sort of game-breaking rule. Yeah. Like, some of them, their villagers can swim across water, or they can take the same action twice. Yep. There's nine factions when you include all the expansions. Yep. And then the board... And that's the top board with the mechs. And the bottom board randomly gets generated... Uh, he's got some uh, FAQs that say this can't go with this one. Yeah, there's and, and that type of idea. There's two combinations that are currently banned, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, you have upgraded your copy completely, as far as I know, other than the meeples. Yeah, right? I haven't upgraded meeples, but everything else is as good as I can get it. Yes. Uh, you have all the expansions, all the promos, all the coins, everything. Yeah, I have decked this game out. I even have the big box, so everything is somewhat held in there. Yeah, it's. this is one of those games, in my opinion, that really started the deluxification of board games. Yes, uh, it's definitely has <laughs> yeah it, it's one of the first ones i can remember getting into the hobby that people would buy the game and spend money to make it better yeah like i'm pretty sure this was the first game we had that we actually had painted miniatures for i, I believe so for sure uh and i think if i'm not mistaken one of his last kickstarter projects uh after scythe i don't think he did any more games on kickstarter hmm yeah, didn't he know did that. Yeah, he did Viticulture, he did Scythe through Kickstarter, and then uh, Euphoria was another Kickstarter edition, but I think everything tapestry? else... Tapestry? No, Tapestry was direct retail, Charterstone direct retail. Uh, it, it, it really set him up to be able to do that as a publisher. Yeah. Uh, extremely successful game. Uh, probably his sec second most successful. Yeah. Or second or third. For uh, the company. For the company. Right, Wingspan has outsold everything he's ever made, uh, but Viticulture and Scythe have both done very well and, and yeah. are, are what you would consider an evergreen title. Yeah, they are a classic and probably one of the staples in a lot of people's collections. Yeah, it's, you know, it's got a big board, uh, you got the neoprene mat, uh, the baseboard used to be able to get an extension to make it even bigger. Which I... Also have those. Which just... you have that. Yeah. It just, there's a lot of stuff you can add to this game to make it better. Or, yeah. or well, to, to add to it. Yeah. And the expansions do a good job where they don't change the game entirely. They just add one thing to it. Like the factions. That's all they really add, really. Yeah. Like, so there's been three, exp three box expansions. Right? Uh, so there's Invaders in from Afar. Rise of Fenris. Rise of Fenris and the uh, Airships. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that one. And I can't think uh, of I name. forget what the name of the Airship yeah. one is. Uh, th this one uh, has some... The baseboard is always set up the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, there... But there is a modular board that you can add to it that changes... The setup. What, it, what it looks like on the board. Or you can even just play it with these little tokens where you shuffle it and put them out and they randomize where all the factions are. Yeah, it's it's a really solid game. Uh, in my opinion, for a bigger box game, it, it's fairly straightforward to teach. 
Yes. Uh, there's not too much uh, overhead in the rules department. No, it's a very simple teach. It's one of those games where it's simple, but the actions you have to think about, like, do I do this now or do I do this later? Yeah. It's it's a game that has a very loyal following. Uh, we've played it at two, three, and four. I, I played it at five or six, but not higher than that. Yeah, I think the most I've played with is four myself. I, I don't remember playing five, six, or seven. Yeah. Uh, I've heard of people doing it. Uh, it's a lot more cutthroat, a lot more... Uh, it's a lot less space for everyone to spread out, so there's a lot more combat in it. Like, yeah. with four, three or four, you could play the entire game without any combat. You, you really can, and it's... You know, it's, it's one of those big box dudes on a map games, which is that hybrid Euro slash... America. Ameritrash or American style, where there is combat, but, but you does. don't have to do combat to win the game. Yeah, it's not the drive of the game. Yeah, and the combat is what I would consider friendly combat, where it pushes you back to your home base, but you're not really punished for yeah. losing a battle. Yeah, and it sets back both players if they really go into it hard. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff that balance this game out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy it. I'm really terrible at it. <laughs> uh, but it's a solid game, solid mechanics. The art in it is outstanding. Uh, Great world building also if you ever read like the stories in it. Like, it has a whole lore. Yeah, th there's lots of theme to it, right? Uh, I don't know what else to say about the game. Like it, it, It's a solid game. We really enjoy it. Uh, we haven't played it for a long time. No, it's been a while since we last played it. And it was uh, when or Thursday Night Games. It was one of the guy's choices, and he picked that one. And we had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I, I'll never say no to a game of Scythe. Yeah. Like, I do want to try it at those higher player accounts, just to experience it that way. But. Yeah. Uh, there is an app version of it where a lot of people get tons of games because you can get a game done in about 20 minutes. Uh, the game itself is a couple of hours, I would say. Yeah, if you're with a good group, you could probably get it done just under two hours, but it's... Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I, I don't see it as a 90-minute game. I see it more as that two-hour range. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those ones that starts slow and builds to a crescendo. Yeah, it's very much, as you get going, you start doing something every round that's important. Yeah. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we'll talk to you next show. Hey folks, Ryan here from Mr. Rouse Gaming Rants and Reviews. And welcome to another week of What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. Where this week I'll be chatting about a little game, and I mean a little game called Sobek Two Players, designed by Bruno Cathala and Sebastian Pachon, published in 2022 by Pandasaurus Games. Construction is underway on a temple dedicated to Sobek. A huge market has emerged nearby, supplied by the continuous flow of felucas and pirogues along the Nile. Both your guild of merchants and your opponent's guild are determined to take advantage of this unbelievable opportunity. But the god Sobek could well tip the scales by offering his favor to whichever of you is least corrupt. Sobek 2 Players is one of these small box two-player only games that my wife and I just 
absolutely seem to adore all of them. And this one I don't think is any exception to the rules. Um, this one is a tile drafting and set collecting game at its heart. But what makes this one set it's a little bit different than all the others is the actual tile drafting mechanic in this game. Because when you select a tile, all of the goods tiles have these little borders around them and they dictate which direction you're going to place this onk token in order to determine what your opponent is going to be able to select from. So I could take a tile, it could be point, then there's this border that says point the onk token up and down. And so now my opponent can only select tiles that are from that column, which way the onk token is um, pointing. And that is really, really kind of cool because I don't think we've played a game where we actually, um, my actions on my turn affect, directly affect what my opponent's choices can be. And that is actually really, really quite cool because I can maybe start paying attention to which tiles my opponent is drafting and try to, you know, position that onk token so that, you know, it's either not pointing to any of those tiles or that it is actually pointing to one of those tiles, but they will have to take some corruption along the way in order to get that particular um, tile. And the corruption mechanic in this game is actually really quite nifty, where it's like, hey, I really, really want that tile that is three spaces away. There's two tiles in between the Ankh token and that one that I want. I can take it, but then I'm going to have to collect those two other tiles and place them onto my corruption board. And, you know, the player with the least amount of corruption at the end of the game, um, they're going to get a little bit of a bonus. There are these little tokens that have different point values printed on them, and you're going to get to randomly select one of these from that stack. And they range from, they're, they're a big wide range of like three to like nine points. So it could be a very little, but it could be a lot. Um, you're also going to get bonus be, uh, determined by the difference of tiles every three corruption tiles that is difference between you and your opponent um whoever had the least is going to get an additional um one of these well, i believe they refer to them as debon tokens um so yeah so if it's a difference of three you're going to get one bonus if it's a difference of six which is really quite possible there'll be two extra bonus tokens at the end which is really really quite neat the rule book in Sobek 2 players is very well written and that is very good because the end of game condition does seem to always seem to creep up and I always have to refer to it as, which one is it here? Oh yes, page 11 of the rule book and I have to refer to this one for some odd reason every single time to remind me how does the game actually end because essentially, I'll just lay it out in layman's terms, you can literally do nothing on your turn, then the game officially ends. And so that means that the Ankh token is pointing to empty squares. There's no tiles to draft. There is no tiles to refill the board. There is, you have no valid sets of tiles in order to play down. And that there is, you have no, there's uh, some tiles are character tiles that are kind of like some game breaking abilities and you don't have one of those to actually play. Um, so that, that's how the game officially ends. And then we always have to refer to that corruption rule. Um, always, uh, 
really, really neat little, uh, really, really neat little game. There's a lot more going on. I didn't actually get to the scoring. The scoring is all about set collecting. There are different types of these good tiles, and some of them have these little golden bugs on them. Some of them have two golden bugs. Some of them have one. And so when you lay down your set, at the end of the game, you're going to count up how many tiles do you have in that particular set, and you're going to multiply it by how many of those golden bugs appear in that set. So if there are four golden bugs and you have five tiles in that set, well, that's four times five. That is 20 points, which is not insignificant in this game because our scores are usually around in like the, the high 50s, probably mid 60s, usually um, from our from our limited game experience so far. Uh, yeah, really, really solid two-player. I don't know where this one's ranking in the two-player only small box games um, as of just yet, but I, this is a very solid entry that I would highly recommend a lot of people go at least um, uh, check out if you have the chance. And the price point here in Canada is right bang on. I believe it's sitting around between that the $25 to $30 mark, which is beautiful beautiful and you're getting awesome quality components and very solid gameplay in my mind so and that's what i've been playing lately be sure to check out my full overview thoughts and review of sobek two players over on my youtube channel today just search up mr rouse gaming rants and reviews and also if you like to follow my all my gaming adventures on facebook twitter and instagram just search up at mr rao gaming that's m-i-s-t-a-r-a-u gaming enjoy the rest of what you've been playing wednesday folks Hey there, everybody. Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, as I always like to do, let's have a look at what the community has been playing. So on our thread on Facebook, let's start off with hands. I'll give you one guess. It's about a planet and it's about terraforming Mars. Uh, no, that's awesome. I, I'd, oh, yeah, it's great to have a grounding game that you can keep going back to and uh, just get more out of it. Uh, beautiful engine builder too. Uh, Gon's Sean Clever, a, a cool kind of roll and write kind of thing. Trails of Tucana, I keep seeing it, hearing it, but I have yet to go and see what it's all about. But uh, repetition is interesting here. Uh, Dice Miner, uh, Rustling Leaves, Rajas of the Ganges, Dice Charmers version. And super mega lucky box. <laughs> that sounds like a game show in a box. That's, that makes me laugh just thinking about it. Uh, awesome. Those are a whole bunch of cool games. Uh, Jeff played Automobile and Dungeon Roll for uh, him this week. Um, Automobile, I think I, I, he might be referring to, I think there's a uh, GM, the Automobile bouncing in my head right now. There's a GMT kind of game that I might be confused with. There's a, I think, an AEG, and then uh, uh, Martin Wallace has Automobile. I'm just looking at the butt. Automobile. Maybe that's it. Maybe he played the Martin Wallace. Uh, either way, um, playing games is good. Well, right on. Well, well done, Jeff. Uh, Scott, not much this week. Started a new D&D &D campaign, Storm, Storm Lord's Wrath. And... Uh, 
approached the end of the Sinister Motives campaign with the four-player Marvel group. Wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, as well as playing a one-off play of the Green Goblin risky, biz risky Business scenario with another friend. That is, uh, I'm a big Spider-Man fan, and that is my favorite one right there. There's two, uh, ad there's two kind of uh, narratives, adventures that you can go on. Uh, so yeah, 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 cool. I mean, Marvel. Marvel's solid. Uh, and completed another asynchronous play of Stella Dixit Universe on BGA. Cool. I have not checked that out. Uh, Eli, Underwater Cities. Yay. That's my favorite engine builder. Sorry, Terraforming Mars. I like, you. I like underwater, underwater Cities better. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Uh, Unmatched, Arkham LCG. That's just making me want to go and play it this weekend. Uh, Viticulture. Nice. With the Vita world. I am very curious about that. I did not jump in on the whole uh, purchase plan thing on that. I was, my, my, my plan was to hopefully wait until it came to the friend, friendly local game store. So uh, here's crossing my fingers. Uh, Tim played Warhammer Underworlds. That looks so cool. Uh, it's Yeah, it looks like a miniatures on the board, kind of uh, uh, hexagonal territory control fighting maybe. Maybe. Uh, I got there's another one here, Wizard Kings. Another looks like a strategy uh, conflict game. And oh, Terraforming Mars. Yeah, see, the, Terraforming Mars is awesome for the simple fact that uh, it's it's evergreen. It's proven that it's that it's got a, a vitality to it. So yeah, awesome. That's great. Dan Inca Gold and. Donner Dinner Party. Ew. Uh, ink and Gold. I've heard, seen it a ton. I've never played it or, or you know, did any homework about it. So uh, I'm, I'm unable to contribute anything to that. But awesome. Matt, strong week. Oh, he gave me a screenshot. Uh, a lot of single plays, but a lot of games single played. Seven Wonders 2nd Edition, Ankh, Gods of Egypt, Ark Nova, Big City, Brian Boru, uh, Dungeons, Dice, and Danger, Dwellings of Everdale, uh, Escape, It's a Wonderful World. It, it's got it. It's, it's alphabetized all the way down to Trois. Uh, Trajan, I'm going to just pop off. Smartphone Inc. Uh, yeah, that's a, wow, that's a huge list. That's a, that's a busy week of gaming, but wonderful week of gaming. Yeah, nice. Well done, Matt. Um, and of course, I'm, Envious. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I don't think I had that that many games at all this week, but I'll I'll chat about it later. Tim played some Curse of Strahd uh, as a player. Nice. Finished up Ghosts of Salt Marsh as a DM. Nice. And recently picked up a core set of Star Wars Legion to try out. I've heard very cool things about Star Wars Legion. If uh, if you're kind of like uh, um, big map miniatures uh, conflict. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, great, um, great uh, narrative games there. Uh, Curse of Strahd. That's a that's a goes way back. A reimplementation of uh, Ravenloft. If there's any kind of nerds out there that even know what Thaco is, <laughs> Paul played Unmatched, Marvel United, Welcome to and Key to the Kingdom. 
Nice. Unmatched. There's just so much to play there. That's fantastic. I've not played Marvel United. There's a lot of people that have it. And a lot of people uh, have fun playing it. They say it's light, but hey, light games can be fun too, right? Jason tried Fantasy Realms. Cool. I got the Star Trek version of that. I got to try it out still. Uh, Magic Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see uh, a table of like eye twitching and body language screaming and absolute giggles, Magic Labyrinth should be something you should try. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, lawyer Up and Return to Dark Tower. Wow. Return to Dark Tower. I'm curious about that one. I want to, I'm going to uh, uh, keep my, uh, keep my, Ears open, as per se, to uh, um, the talk of Dark Tower, because it, it, uh, it's a nostalgic trip, absolutely, but sometimes nostalgia is expensive. <laughs> Ryan, we celebrated National Indigenous Peoples Day yesterday by destroying colonizers in Spirit Island. <laughs> that is awesome! Yay! <laughs> oh, first of all, yay, and second of all, Yay. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's, yeah. I'm looking at a whole bunch of big hugs on that one. Uh, Zach got the big game on the table, and the big game is TI4. There is, that's a space opera. Uh, I've played that a few times. Uh, nothing wrong with the game, as long as everyone who's playing the game gets how to play the game, because uh, if, if there's, a, you know... A uh, new player variable that just likes to push the you know the gas down and hang on to the steering wheel. That's way too much chaos for a game board filled with uh, a lot of strategy and strategic setups where there's a mad Cadillac flying through the board. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's my only complaint. <laughs> but I do it, it has it has motivated me to. Uh, go explore Eclipse because I hear a lot of people saying that uh, Eclipse is, uh, is I mean, they refer to them on the same scale. It's sort of like Stones, Rolling Stones or the Beatles, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I got I to gotta try out some uh, Rolling Stones with the Eclipse. So there you go. Unless you think that, uh, that uh, Eclipse is the Beatles, right? So, you know, it's, it's all about the tax man. Um, yeah, there you go. That's what the community has been playing. Well, what I've been playing, what, what you've been playing, Norm? Uh, I've been playing Paleo. Uh, it is designed by Peter Rustemeyer, and it is published by Hansen Kluck. And uh, it is, a, of course, a solo to four-player game. And it uh, plays around 40, uh, 45 to 60 minutes. And uh, it is, I'm going to read the description because, um, or just part of it, just to give you a, a quick you know, uh, uh, immediate understanding of what it is. So Paleo is a cooperative adventure game. Cooperative in my books means soloable. Set in the Stone Age, a game in which players try to keep the human beings in their cave alive while completing missions. Sometimes you need a fur, sometimes a tent, but these are all minor quests compared to your long-term goal, painting a woolly mammoth on the wall so that humans thousands of years later will know that you once existed. Okay, just you think the mammoth painting looks cool? Preserving a record of your past existence is gravy. 
<laughs> that sounded very, very much like Austin Powers. Groovy, baby. Um, uh, what might keep you from painting that mammoth? Death in all its many forms, right? It's the Stone Age. Uh, so each player starts the game with a couple of humans uh, who each have skills and a number of life points. On a turn, each player chooses to go to one location, possibly the same type as other players, although not the same location. And while you have some ideas of what you might find, you won't know for sure until you arrive, at which point you may acquire food or resources or find what you need to craft a useful object or discover that you can aid someone else in their project or suffer a, uh, a snake bite that brings you close to death. Life is full of both wonders and terrors. Uh, yeah, so that is what's going on. It's very cool. Now, again, I say uh, I've played it uh, as solo, right, because... That's uh, that's what I got going on. But um, in this case, I played a, a kind of two player boards and uh, it's a very cool deck resource uh, um, kind of uh, um, selection of, of, of your action, because what happens is you have uh, uh, some de a deck of cards and the backs of them. There's kind of th three types of cards in regards to, uh, you know, regions and nature and what you what your potential is to do as far as activities goes and uh, you pick up three cards and then out of those three cards you're going to have selections of what you can accomplish as uh, as a as a player and as these uh, these two individuals that you have in your cave depending on the skill sets they have now without getting into a deep review um, me being a social studies teacher uh, I, I mean I gravitate towards these things uh, these types of games and um, like like the the original game or the the worker placement game Stone Age. Um, well, yeah, the theme is kind of painted on, right? I mean, there's not there's not much there except for I'm gonna send some people here to get this resource. It's basic kind of like you know card collecting. There's not much thematic connection as far as my perspective as a you know social studies teacher goes. It's like yay, great, those are nice pictures, but as far as how the, the the mechanisms fit the theme there's not much connection there right maybe one strand of plug-in but this game attempts to do uh a little more effort in regards to connecting your the the, the mechanical nature of the game in regards to uh your card choices to your action choices to the resources that you have to the potentials of uh, like the idea of discovering how to uh, create different tools gives you new cards on the market, new uh, uh, advancements. And I think it does a fantastic job at uh, um, kind of allowing you some agency as, you know, not, not min-maxing the card situation like this is the most efficient play because the card you pick is, is you're kind of picking a thematic choice. I'm going to go into nature. Well, in nature, you might have an animal that you can kill for some food to feed the tribe, or you might get into a, a bad situation and there's a fire and you, you, know, you start losing hit points, right? Uh, you only have choices of a global nature, and then when you flip it over, then you get to know the specific and make a tactical choice. Now, there's also good tactical choices where you can help somebody else with the resources that your uh, individuals in your cave dwelling possess. So I like that approach to 
the mitigation of this randomness. And again, you know, in a situation like that, when it's survival, there is randomness. You don't know if there's going to be a sharp rock available to you or a pointy stick, right? So uh, it's the choices that you make in regards to directing yourself towards these objectives. Uh, And um, what I liked a lot about it was there are kind of a um, a little thematic card sets that you can mix and match and kind of thing and create different uh, um, uh, game situations. So I've yet to explore a lot. My first few plays, I I quite enjoy it, right? Uh, Again, because... I love the, I love the con I love the thematic content. So uh, I hope it continues to um, make even more deeper connections with the, uh, the 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 specificity of that time period. So yay! I'm happy with that one. Well, uh, we're at that uh, that sweet spot hour that I always like to uh, navigate towards. And uh, to wrap things up, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for taking the time to hear what we have to say about our wonderful hobby. And uh, also, content creators, uh, huge um, uh, thank you so much for uh, everything that you guys do and contribute. So, yay, un gros merci. So, uh, that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? (laughs) 